You are listening to the Regeneration Rising podcast, a podcast from the Kavira Coalition about the trials, tribulations, and triumphs of agrarians in the United States. Each episode will explore what it means to work in regenerative agriculture, how people came to choose this as their livelihood, and why it's important to them and the future. We hope to build a foundation for a strong community of future agrarians and land stewards with a regenerative approach to community, relationships, and the land. back to the podcast. My name is Taylor Molia. Today I'm interviewing Martha Skelly. She is the farm and livestock manager at Picinus Ranch in California and she was a former Nogarian program apprentice at San Juan Ranch as well as Tuli's Trees. Our conversation today comes in a really perfect time in the year for those listening into the future. I guess not so much but currently it is mid-August. Um, things are hot. A lot, a lot is going on in the farm. We are doing a lot of harvesting, whether that's vegetables or harvesting animals, and it tends to be kind of a go, go, go time of the year. And we tend to really neglect our personal (laughs) needs this time of the year. So sleeping, eating well, um, generally just resting, uh, socializing, getting, building relationships, even dating can be really, really hard this time of year. And so I'm super excited for this conversation with Martha. She is, first of all, just very down to earth. And she's also hilarious in talking about these issues. I think it's something that doesn't get talked about as much. And I'm super excited to hear Martha's point of view. So uh, thank you so much for tuning in. And here's my interview with Martha. Martha, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. So first of all, I would love to know, where are you from and where are you currently calling from? I grew up in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, in Harrisonburg, Virginia, and I'm currently in Picinus, California. So you have a kind of a storied history with agriculture, but we're going to kind of jump into some different aspects of it. So you went to Warren Wilson College, which is actually a huge trend in the NAP program. We have a couple other Warren Wilson alumni and you worked on their college farm. Tell us how did that shape your path into agriculture? Very much so. And yeah, way to go, Warren Wilson. Well, Wilsonites, I guess maybe I started that trend. I don't know. Warren Wilson has a college farm. It's part of the work program. At the time when I was there, which was over a decade ago, it was part of a triad I don't think they emphasize that as much as they used to, but you did work service in your academics and those things encompass the three legs of the stool. When I was 19, I ended up on the farm crew after a process of kind of requesting a trialing out, interviewing for a position on the farm crew. And at that time, it was just kind of like, oh, what is this? What's going on there? And it's, it's the college farm at the time was a multi-species diversified operation. It didn't do anything with gardening. There was a whole nother crew for vegetables. So what we were doing is we were raising grass-fed beef cattle, swine, and poultry, and we were raising barley, corn, and hay crops to feed into that system. And so Warren Wilson set me up kind of for the the trajectory I'm on, right? It, it 
wasn't a conventional system. It was promoting a sustainable ag program. And uh, my degree is in environmental studies with a concentration in sustainable agriculture. And that was the hot word then. And it really, it was full picture and full circle in a lot of ways where we were growing the barley that was fed to the pigs, the corn that was fed to the pigs, the cattle were all pasture based, you know, and that's what I fell in love with was the cows. I worked a summer in 2010 and with a great crew of other farm crew members and we all, almost all of us have stayed in agriculture. And so that was a really kind of special cohort of individuals and we've supported each other along the way. Two of them are running their own farms right now. I've been in, you know, working on a path of agricultural management. Another gentleman, he's been an extension agent. He's done all kinds of other ag work. But it just, yeah, set me up for where I'm, where I'm at now and how I came to the Kavira Coalition and the new agrarian program. So tell us, what was that transition like coming out west, joining the new agrarian program and working at San Juan Ranch? Yeah. So I think it's important to to take a little step back and say, so I grew up in Shindo Valley. I grew up in a non-agricultural family, two generations removed. And, you know, me being interested in agriculture was certainly not what my parents thought I should be pursuing early on. And so even though I got a degree in it, you know, they they had encouraged maybe getting a master's or like, or go dabble, you know, go do a little bit more, but, you know, plan to get a more traditional job. Soil has always been the thread that's kept everything together here. And it was in when I was 16, I fell in love with like soil taxonomy. And then I went off to school and I found out soil was alive and was this thing that could be cared for and improved through grazing. And so when I found the new agrarian apprenticeship, I was in my last semester of college. It's, you know, it took all my energy and I ignored my studies there in the end and applied for the program because I was like, how do people do it out West? How is this all done in arid environments? You know, I'm used to 40, 60 inches of rainfall. And, you know, I'd always heard, oh, you need 100 acres for one cow, kind of crazy things like that. And just didn't have any, never been to Colorado, never been to that part of the West. I had been in New Mexico and things like that, but only for family vacations. So because of my interest in aridity, I really was plopped down into just the right place at the right time to learn about that. So when I arrived at San Juan Ranch in 2012, they were in their second year of extreme drought. At that time, it was a year-long program, and I ended up seeing maybe two inches of rainfall the whole time I was there, and I lasted 13 months. It, it just, yeah, it was really dry, but I also the great lesson there is that we had to think outside the boundaries of the ranch, and that's something that George and Julie had already done once before. They had had to move in the 2000, 2001 drought, and so, you know, and that drought has followed me throughout my career. <laughs> At this point, it is an important element to any manager's toolkit is learning how to to manage through drought and extreme wetness because you get both nowadays. My first year at San Juan, I mean, it really just was a fire hose of information and experiences and it's foundational to where I'm at today. What was that like? I'm just curious. You came to the one part of Colorado that is so extreme. Every time I go visit George and Julie, my my lips are just like completely <laughs> dried out. My skin, my eyes, like everything is so intense there. The sun and the wind. How was that like moving to such an extreme different place? 
So growing up in the humid southeast, right, I immediately noticed my hair went straighter and I never had straightish. Like I always had kind of frizzy hair. So it was sort of a, that was like the like, my hands drying out exactly. And for those who've never been to the San Luis Valley, it is uh, roughly 7,000 feet elevation. It's a dry, similar to the Tibetan Plateau. It's a it's high elevation desert environment and it only gets six inches of rainfall, but it also has this giant aquifer that sits under it. And that's that's what makes all agriculture there possible is the, the water underneath of it. So you left San Juan after your apprenticeship and you worked at some other places. So, so yeah, I, I left San Juan Ranch after my apprenticeship. I worked for Gordon and Margaret, the Thule's, at Tuli Trees in New Mexico because I had an interest in apples. Like I was checking off my boxes, like of all the things I was interested in. I was in my early 20s. I did veggie farming, discovered I was not a veggie farmer. But I also saw that I was really interested in management. I was interested in that level of responsibility as well as processes and systems thinking. And so I needed someone to take a chance on me. And so Jordan and Julie were we're at a point where they needed a foreman. And so they took me on and they gave me this early experience that set me up for where I'm at today. But it was also a place that I couldn't probably stay forever. So I did leave. I went and worked in Alabama, BDA farms for almost two years, and then came to Piscinus Ranch here. And my connection here is actually from someone who knows George. You know, it all started actually when I was picked up at the airport for my interview for the San Juan apprenticeship. So those people have led me to the position I have today. So never, you know, discount any small connection because you never know where it's going to lead you. What I do today is I'm in charge of uh, four different animal enterprises, beef, cattle, sheep, swine, and poultry. And um, we use turkeys and chickens, and we're expanding that program. Right now, it's taking a lot of my kind of interest and energy. But the sheep program is our, our largest enterprise, and it's what manages the rangeland, which we have 6,500 acres of. That That's our tool is sheep. And actually, because of the drought conditions here in California, we've had them elsewhere and managed by another outfit for the last four months. And the sheep just returned this past week. And so we're getting back into the groove of, of herding our own animals and grazing, getting back to grazing our, our rangeland and meeting our ecological goals. I'm just curious, how many sheep is that for 6,000-ish 6, acres? How many sheep is that? So we also have some irrigated acres that they, they come in and out of. But I, I brought 1,900 head back. We don't breed all of those. We, we breed around 1,100. Wow. California always really confuses me in terms of the timeline of things because it's so different. So when is your lambing season? So we're not too different than most of the country. Piscinus is Central Coast, kind of just inside in a rain shadow of all things. Yay! <laughs> we do green up. Our growing season is the winter, which is very counter to most, you know, most people's thinking. There, our dormant season is the summer. And so we um we had to stockpile as much forage going into the spring summer this past year to to come back with our flock. But your original question was when do we lamb? We lamb in in March actually, February March. There's a little bit of story there, but we purchased in some more ewes um, in fall of 2020 and we bred late and they ended up last year we lambed in May, which everything worked out, but we were very much in the dormant season by the time lambing was done. You've worked on a lot of different operations and you've worked a lot of really long hours. At this point, you've seen 
kind of what works for you and what doesn't work for you. And in agriculture in general, it's rewarded to be a workaholic. So young people tend to accept and embody that at the expense of many things, which we, we were talking about social life, hobbies, family. And it feels like sometimes we keep our heads down and just get through it and sustain it for five to 10 years. And then we look up and our lives are completely different. Like we've been ignoring those things for quite a while. In our conversation before, you said that you're experiencing a little bit more time off this year. And do you feel like you are searching for who you are again, now that you have that time to really be with yourself again and not work 24 seven? Yes, I, w- I would say that I'm like getting my head above water a little bit and being like, wait, what, what, what have I been doing? And not that I don't regret all of the different places I've been and the environments, but you know, I am a workaholic. I'm acknowledging that nowadays. You know, I had a friend a number of years ago said, Martha, you're a workaholic. And I was like, ah, oh, no, I'm not. Like I'm, I'm not addicted to work or, you know, need work as a structure. And uh, that's totally true. So that's something that's taking me, especially the pandemic really made some of that real obvious. Just all the ways that in my previous position, some of my habits about work and how I just put myself deeper into work as a solution to, you know, not having a relationship or or failing at finding the time to to cultivate relationships. So I can get stuck on on that, but very much I've been I'm in a privileged position in some ways that, you know, I'm not working for myself. I'm not self-employed. I'm not running my own agricultural business. So I I do have the luxury of being in a ranch environment where they do support people to have time off and to take weekends. And that's at the same time, I'm supposed to do whatever it takes to keep everything going. So I don't certainly always take the time that is available. And so I'm trying to structure my team and structure my training of my employees so that we can be more successful at at supporting each other and I don't have to take up all the slack. That's been, I guess, one of my big reflections is how in my leadership, my management style, it's like, oh, I'll just do it. You know, that, that, that solves, no one has, I don't have to ask people to work extra hours. I don't have to infringe on their time off, but Martha will take it on. And that's not healthy. It's not advisable is the lessons I've, I've taken away. But, you know, if it's your own operation, you're going to have to do whatever it takes. And so I've, I've, worked for those people. I've been there. I've witnessed it. And it's, you know, people talk about farming being a lifestyle and it very much is. But when you are, it's not your show and you give everything you can, you know, you look up at 32 and realize you're still single or you're still haven't checked off those personal goals that you've had. And that's what I'm, I'm trying to sit with and change my expectations of, of, so for most of my life, I had the expectation I would be, you know, have, be married, have children, have, you know, attained some of those kind of nuclear family goals. And here I am not, I haven't done any of that. So a lot of my self-talk has to change that narrative, has to change the the layers of expectations. And I'm really starting to feel like, all right, it's on me. Like no one said I had to work that Saturday necessarily, but I knew I had to, ir- for instance, like I had to irrigate or I had to do this, but no one said I couldn't go to town and, you know, have a beer or, you know, go to a, I don't know, I never go to concerts, but this idea of like, you could go, you can go use your time the way you want. At the end of the day, I can choose how to use my time while fulfilling the expectations of my role in my job. 
do you find that your because you've had many options i'm sure you've had the opportunity to have your own enterprise perhaps and maybe you will but do you find yourself in this manager role in the unique opportunity that you do have this flexibility like do you value that a lot like speaking to a lot of young agrarians listening to this podcast it's like they're looking ahead of them and and deciding like is there are so many perks to owning the business but there's also a lot of perks to managing the business. I mean, you get to punch a time card, sort of, right? So do you find yourself enjoying that luxury of being a manager more than you thought? Yes. I, you know, a lot of owning your own operation, being self-employed is very much how much, you know, risk are you willing to take on? The friends of mine who are successful in running their own ag operations that are my age come from similar backgrounds as me. They have their partner. They have someone to support them in doing that work. And it might be a business partner or it's a romantic, you know, partner. And so I've not found either of those things to build a successful enterprise. And I've certainly, you know, weekly, I'm thinking, oh, you know, this is, you know, how I could do it. And here's this and here's land over here. And how would I pay, you know, the mortgage on that? Or, you know, what Airbnb situation yurt would I be setting up? You know, how are all these ways you layer a multipurpose enterprise on a on a set of land? And it doesn't often look east, right, where you can get a lot do a lot more with less land, but but how do you afford million dollar acre, you know, scenarios? And I don't have that stress, right? I'm not paying off that mortgage right now. But I can do feel like I could step and go do that if I if I needed to with the skills that I have now. Yeah, there's definitely benefits to not having that on your plate and just excelling at someone else's operation and fulfilling their goals. Going back to our conversation about workaholism in agriculture and a lot of young agrarians that I talk to, friends of mine or people in the program, you know, it's just kind of everywhere. The paradigm is that the owner of the ranch, the farm owner, doesn't get days off and they work their butts off and they have an vacation and they don't get they don't get those even they don't sometimes get paid <laughs> like at the end of the year, you know, like so sometimes they hesitate to pay workers fairly or give them time off because they don't feel like they're getting that themselves, which, you know, has all of its complications. I I like to talk about how young agrarians can facilitate that conversation. What advice would you have for someone who's approaching an employer and is really exhausted and it just they know that just a couple of days off a week, even one day off a week would improve their mental health, improve their lifestyle. So what advice would you have for them? Advocate. I mean, you're your greatest advocate and if if an employer won't give you that one or two days off a week that helps you be a better employee, a stronger employee. That per- person really needs to, that boss needs to think about how they value you because they're probably going to lose you to either burn out or to just to, in some level of respect issues. I, it's easy for me to say, but you know, I've been on the other end of that where it's like, oh, I'll come back to you if, if you give me one day off a week. And that's, that was a big step for that operation to, to go there. And it wasn't that we, we worked seven days a week, but it wasn't, it wasn't always go, 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 go. Right. I've, I've had the eight to four thirty job where I worked my butt off five days a week. And then I got two days and I had to learn when I had, when I had that job, I never had an ag job that gave me time off like routinely. I had to learn what to do with a day off. Like I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to take time off. And that was not supported in the culture at Warren Wilson. It wasn't supported 
early on, that was not anyone's culture was to take time or, or to teach young people how to use their time for their own benefit. And what I've noticed is I used to spend that time off for my downtime playing music, staying creative with my musical part of my, my heart and brain. And then I, I moved away. When I moved away from San Juan Ranch, that all crashed and burned because didn't feel like there was space for that because I, I needed to work. I needed to do what the job required. And it crushed my like my creativity in a lot of ways. And I'm still climbing out of that. And that's part of using my time off right now is to like do those little creative pursuits. 10 minutes a day, 15 minutes a day. That's a tangent there. But not letting those parts of you go. If you if you have if and maybe it's working your dog, like you have a herding dog. It doesn't need to be music, but it's your thing that's not ranching. It's not animal agriculture. It's not vegetable production. It's you can spend all day talking about those things. That was the funny thing at Warren Wilson is some of our friends who weren't on farm crew didn't like to sit with us at lunch because we just talk about farming. So it just that it is all consuming and you can totally let it consume you. And I think the people who are really successful and many of my mentors I look up to, they they have a way of balancing it. They get off and they take a hike. Even if they fail at that pretty often, they do do go out and do it. Or they, they read a book or they play the guitar for 30 minutes and then go to bed. Like At the end of the day, again, you're in control of how you use your time. Back to your kind of original question of how you advocate for that. It's becoming more and more the norm. So I do think there's a, there's a momentum in that direction. Everything from you know $15 an hour to, to just how we treat workers. And I'm living in California where we have all these ag labor laws, so many. And it's because, you know, abuses of the system. And so now that I live here and I see all the the ways that workers do have certain level of protection, they don't have perfect protection, but it's, it really is kind of weird to look over at other states and like, oh, like they don't, they don't need eight-hour rules or overtime rules or days off. You either fiscally compensate the person or you give them the time off they deserve. Have you found that there are plenty of employers out there who can manage that, who can offer those benefits? Because sometimes it seems like, well, just nobody can do it. You know, it's like, it's just, it's, (laughs) it's a cop-out, but sometimes it feels like, you look around, and you're just like, man, every single job posting is the same. So do you feel like there are jobs out there just from your experience? Do you think there are jobs and ranches out there enough for young grarians to find a good opportunity so, so they could hold out for a better opportunity? Yes, they're out there. They're not common. But, you know, I believe everyone should at least have one day off, full day off, where they have no responsibilities to the operation they work for. If you're not the owner operator of that operation. I remember I used to, I would sleep 12 hours on my day off. I'd sleep X number of hours into my day off and then I wouldn't have the, you know, it's like people need that downtime. They need the recharge moment. And if as an employer, you don't recognize that, no wonder you go through people. But, you know, some people live for it. I see it in some people that I are recently been under my supervision and I remember that energy of like not wanting to miss out on anything and because it's a learning opportunity or it's a moment to be on a beautiful landscape, but you need it. Take it. You've been doing agriculture for 12 years now. Do you feel like it takes 10 to 12 years to really reach? That's also another question that I ask people because I think it's, it's important 
for people coming into the new agrarian program to understand like that their first season's not going to like spit them out into a nice fancy manager role. <laughs> how how many years do they do you feel like it took you to to apply for those positions with confidence? Well, I would say I I chose an accelerated path in some ways. I was 24. I decided I wanted to be a manager and George and Julie gave me that opportunity, right? Like I had the the right things aligned. The reality is, should I have taken on that much responsibility? I actually had a former boss, not George and Julie, <laughs> turn to me and say, why would you want this level of responsibility at this age? Really made me like, you need to think why you want this. And I was, I wanted it. So that's what I went for. And my, I don't think I answered the why. I didn't. I knew I didn't want to be a vegetable laborer for the rest of my life. Each person needs to ask themselves. But I would actually probably, if if I could coach my younger self, I would have told myself to to put the pause button and just get experience. But like, have a social life, have fun. I actually left a job once to go back to George and Julie's. I guess that where I I told my mother I said it's too social. You know, I and it, part of that is I believed I was a rather, you know, like I liked rural life. I liked having my own time. I liked my quiet time. I'm more of an introvert than an extrovert. I need quiet time to, you know, to recharge. But at the same time, it's like I had all these connections and young people around me and people my own age. And in hindsight, that was actually a really nurturing and good environment for me to grow as a as a social creature. <laughs> Right. And that, that brings me to my next question. You know, we've we've talked about the fact that time seems to pass you by, like you put your head down, like we were saying. And, you know, I think there's this thing in agriculture where it's like, I don't need the white picket fence. I don't need their, you know, I, I eat well, so I don't need, <laughs> this is my naive self. When I was like 22, I was like, I don't need health insurance. I just eat well and I'm outside all the time. And I don't, I don't need any of these amenities that people have. And I, time goes by and you get a little more mature. And I think it's a factor of natural progression of adults but also seeing all of your friends getting to that point too probably doesn't help. But you get to the point where you're like, I actually do, I would appreciate some healthcare and some like, you know, or family, like I would appreciate having a house or, you know, getting there. This brings up a, a bunch of memories and thoughts, but you know, one was like, oh, running water inside is really nice. <laughs> <laughs> Right. You're just so gritty. You like, yeah. want to prove it to everybody that you're, you know, counterculture, like you can do it. I'm pretty, th I'm thankful for all the house, the structures I've had over my head, but sometimes they, you know, they could have been up in one more notch or two. So this, this reminds me a little bit of like, I would say it, it's my, the younger employees or my younger apprentices I've mentored, which is still kind of funny to me to say that, but yeah, in your 20s, like time and things, it's just all so not relevant. And I was definitely that 20 something. But now that I employ people in their 30s, like their weekend is important to them. If we don't, if we don't plan out the whole month, and they suddenly have to be asked to cover someone else's shift on a weekend, like that's a sometimes a no go. Like that's a big ask and can, you know, make it hard you make relationship and trust and things you just make it harder but at the same time it's like as a team how do we care for each other emergencies obviously don't usually count in that category but 
we so often in our, the you know, in your 20s, you just think, oh, there's time for those creature comforts to come along and they can come along. And that's definitely my, my story and trajectory in like the last six years I have, I've become much, you know, I'm much more valuable to each of my employers moving forward because of my experiences, but also their, what they offer me has been better and better. How do you find ways to achieve those quote unquote creature comforts, you know, that, that we're all kind of coming around and being like, oh, I actually do want that. I would actually like to get married and have kids. And that's not a crazy thing anymore. That's actually something that would be nice or even, even just like have friends, you know, I, (laughs) adult friends (laughs) seems to be such a challenge for us. So how are you starting to take steps toward achieving those goals? Well, taking my day off helps. Good. Going and doing something on my day off is right. a healthy choice. Pandemic ending is helpful in that sense or our, our ease with COVID. I am the last person of my, I don't have many friends, but I'm the last person that's single and without a kid, pretty much. And I didn't, you know, there's kind of that old adage of like, if you didn't find them in your early 20s, like you, you may be you know, single for the rest of your life, which is totally not true. But the yeah, one of those expectations, right, I've always held is I would be married by 29. Didn't happen. So taking my time, putting myself out there, right, is the only way I'm going to be more successful. It does go back to how you use your time, how you spend your time. And so I'm working on how, how do I not let day-to-day agriculture consume me and the, the, the fires that happen you know, at a management level that keep you in the hot seat or keep you at work all day. It's becoming more and more possible. It's just like not not there yet. But I keep thinking I'm going to get there. And something I always think about too is I feel like the most attractive people are the people who take care of themselves and are happy, you know, and not at the bar drinking and talking about farming nonstop. <laughs> so I feel like I'm, I've been there. I've absolutely done that. But I feel like people who have a good sense of themselves tend to tend to get out there and make friends and make partners, you know? Yeah. And I, I would say I'm probably a little, because of some of my choices and being so work focused, like I haven't worked on as many parts of myself as I need to be a self, to be a confident individual, to be, you know, I used to be known as kind of a bossy person and really like people would, would use that in a positive way. And that I was self-assured that I felt, you know, I had a a lot of direction and like, that was the things that was often shared with me or admired. And nowadays I'm like, oh gosh, I've, I've gotten here, but how do I, where do I go from here now that I've hit all my professional goals, which is kind of, I haven't hit them all, but yeah. How do we create the other goals? And that reality is your personal goals are the things that are going to support you for the length of your whole life. Work is not always going to be there. This job's not going to always be there. I could, you know, lose a leg or lose an arm and, you know, and this job would be harder. Probably wouldn't completely exclude me from the work, but there's always that in the back of my mind of how you could hurt yourself or take yourself out of, out of agriculture. Sometimes I I talk to people who are on pretty rural ranches and it tends to be that even if they're not religious, almost church is the closest thing they have to a social gathering. So sometimes we have apprentices that show up to church, even though they don't believe in that religion, just to, you know, it's just a de facto community center. 
Yeah, I can speak to being that person before. And I, I grew up in church. But when I lived in Alabama, one thing I realized is I didn't really fit in anywhere um, without having to travel like two hours away. And so I wasn't going to drive that far to, to do something socially for like an hour and a half. Not not worth it. Maybe worth it. But I, yeah, I would end up at the local, you know, Baptist church down the road because there was singing, there was a potluck, there was something to do. And it was nourishing to be in community with people. And I think when you asked earlier, what are some of my first year thoughts about the New Agrarian Program was this whole community of people I was invited into and that George and Julie's friends and their community became my community community. I fit into that community, fit into the Kavir Coalition bubble. That network of people led me to my next job. This this way of actually having FaceTime with people and having land management often as the common goal has been really powerful. And something when I left San Juan Ranch and like went to Alabama, it was actually leaving the Kavir community that proved to be difficult. Like I, I while I had connections to people. I went to a whole new environment, a new agrarian community and kind of regenerative ag people, but they weren't the St. Louis Valley. They weren't George and Julie's friends. Like I couldn't recreate that in Alabama fully. And so that's what eroded some of my, like I just didn't have a support network to keep doing that job well. And I really felt my mental health was was going downhill. And so like I wanted to move on from that position and Piscina's position became available. So that's kind of like getting back to like, yeah, what's our community? And here at Piscinas, I have a much larger network of ranch employees. We have our, you know, through this pandemic, we've supported each other. There's been this core group of people, but you know, at the end of the day, they're my work colleagues and that's not going to sustain me. I'm just now feeling like almost three years in, I'm now building, you know, post 2020 and I'm building some friends outside the ranch to go and interact with, but there's just so much more potential. And can I continue to keep my elbows out about my time and not let the ranch consume me? It's just constant battle, right? Of how, how do we keep this work? Because it's just, sometimes it's easier just to let it to consume you, right? Like not to fight it. But again, you look down for five years and five years have gone by. I have some goals for my 30s and I can't put my head down anymore. I have this perpetual problem of only I'll go out and be like, I'm going to find some new friends. And then I find the friends who are farmers and effectively keep working because I'm thinking about the things that I'm working on. Do you have any tips for me, first of all? Or can you just simply commiserate that it's hard to find friends outside of the industry because you you know that's your passion it's all you've been working on for 10 12 years I, I mean i find that hard in the dating sphere so i'm outside of silicon valley okay like, oh my god no <laughs> i'm not gonna you know go over my dating profile here but it's just like i'm like grass is really cool young solar energy rebuilding soil carbon yes there's in using livestock and like humanely raising them and yes eat beef eat lamb really that's what everyone needs to do is eat more lamb <laughs> But, um, or coal use. Use are wonderful too. Mutton, mouton. Yeah, I, I'm. This is why we can't go to bars. Yeah. This is why, this is it. (laughs) But this is why I need my people, right? Right. But the thing is, I, I would even say though, and something I definitely experienced in Alabama is like the regenerative ag community is very small in the grand scheme of things. And 
were pretty spread out. And like, even within the, the county I live in, there's not that many people who get the type of ag we're trying to achieve or, or get why you would struggle through weeds and not using plowing and think you know, how do we go back to more of a pastoral system? You know, just, okay. Yeah, I actually find it hard to have an ag community beyond Piscinus Ranch right now because it's it's over in Watts it's over like an hour and a half away and it's California traffic and having time to like go and have a beer with a farming young farming coalition group over there it's like well do I want to spend two hours in traffic get back late have to get up you know just like this constant the only place I've ever lived in a real solid farming community that supported each other and had camaraderie that was my age at that time was in Virginia, was in a vegetable farming community. I think it is harder in livestock and ranching sometimes to find those like-minded individuals in your region. Yeah, we're all so spread out. And that's just the nature of if each of us has, a, you know, miles, hundreds of miles between us, then it's just, that's just the way it is. I don't know about you, but I've definitely been like, gonna go on a date with someone and and I'm like, well, you see, I got to move the cows and I got to check the irrigation. Then I can come. I'll meet you at, you know, 2 p.m. But I have to leave by 6 p.m. to do night chores. It's like, like, and you don't want to invite them to the ranch yet because you don't really want them to know where you live. And, you know, it's just like right. first or second date. And like, you know, initially it's like, oh, that's cool. Yeah, sure. Go do your, go do your cow stuff. You're a cowgirl, you know? And it's like, oh God. And I know it's like this balance too, when you date people that are not in the, ag scene they're they like think it's they just think it's like this cute kitschy thing that you do too i've had girlfriends of mine be like i i'm like this muse that he's fascinated by that i work on a farm it's this crazy thing but to me it's very serious and just what i love to do yeah now like at the same time i've had i had a, a very sweet boyfriend who didn't mind coming all the way out here he drove an hour while there's other things that didn't sustain that relationship, the fact he showed up was was huge. That's the reason it's what it did go on as long as it did, because I didn't as often make it over his way. So they exist; they're out there, right? Yep. Just takes a little bit of time to find the right people, and I feel like it's too just getting out there, you know, showing up at community events. Like I actually think having a Facebook, as much as a lot of people hate Facebook, it is nice when you're in a rural community, like people tend to post things on there or plug into those pages and just show up and it's scary and it's, you're tired and it's hard to talk to people, but it's how it goes. So, so Piscinus is near Hollister, which is kind of a sleeper community. And I actually recently became a local library member and I've been meaning to do that for a while, but even though it's a small kind of, I don't, it's not Sawatch, Colorado library. Um, I could classify rural libraries, but probably still is classified as kind of a rural community, even though it's like 60,000 people. Point is, like, suddenly I was like, oh, there's a recycling event. They're promoting, you know, plastic something, and they're going to have this free viewing of this documentary. And I was like, oh, I had no idea these things were going on. The other day, I've changed my work schedule, and I'm off in the middle of the week. And I, like, was at a coffee shop. Yes, I went to a coffee shop. People who know me would be like, what? And I like read the local paper and I've discovered there's a trivia night. And I've now got all the young people on the ranch going to trivia night on Wednesday. You know, it's like, it's like, wait, just that. But it's like, if I hadn't had the time to go read the magazine, like no one else was talking about that here. So 
it does take effort and what role can you play to bring people together, right? If you do live with a small cohort of, of individuals, especially if you work with them all the time, you may not want to go out with them, right? So it's, there's always a fine balance. One of my last questions is really is way deep. And I think when I was writing these questions, I was like, Martha's going to have all the answers. She's been doing this for long enough. I'm going to look to her as my sage. But my question is, is ranching and particularly in your case, regenerative ranching and for people who don't come from a ranching background, is it working for anyone? Is it a viable path? Like what, what path should we have to look forward to? Like, is there a viable path that works, that has this life balance, that has enough pay and benefits and you can see your family, you can achieve the things that you want to achieve? Is it working for anybody? Well, this makes me go to, it's not working for, for most people, right, is the reality. I recently saw a post from an organization I respect, and, you know, they said, let's not talk about the broken food system. Let's talk about how industrial agriculture is actually highly successful. It is highly successful at exploiting people. It is highly successful at making money for the few. And so it does go back to we need a paradigm shift around agriculture, you know, food. But it all goes back to relationships, right? It's a relationship with the land. It's a relationship with the animals on the land. It's a relationship with the people that know and have this knowledge and this ancient knowledge, right? Respect the indigenous knowledge of those places and not just co-op it. My heart goes out to, it's not working for the migrant laborer. If we're dependent on 40 acres of garlic and 40 acres of carrots to be produced and, and weeded organically by a team of individuals who don't have citizenship, who don't know their rights as a migrant or as a, an undocumented person, don't, you know, I have no idea what any of those people's statuses are. But the reality is, all of us are dependent, if we go to the grocery store, on on those people. And it's not working. And we see this chain effect in family farming, right? We see the loss of family farms, the corporatization of land and the purchasing of land. Bill Gates now, you know, owns more land than anyone else. Like nothing, you know, we don't want to go down that too much. But the the point is we're we all need to really ask ourselves, is it working? And it, it needs to start with regional-based food systems, right? We need to work away from global agriculture and global dependency. And we aren't necessarily successful here at Piscinus Ranch yet with that. But the more loops we can close and do here to produce healthy pasture-raised proteins, you know, the more boxes I'm checking off. And that even goes all the way back to my Warren Wilson career, which is we grew the barley and the corn that the pigs ate. The only input into that whole system was soy because we really were crappy at raising organic soybeans. So if we all thought about growing our own little veggie garden, this is that's why I got into agriculture. It was like having your little garden in the back, victory gardens. There's a gentleman like early on I heard, you know, he's like, growing your own vegetables is like printing your own money, right? It's like this whole, how do we get more community-based agriculture how do we but how do we support people and people have a living wage farmers can pay for their land they can pay off their land they can tenure their land to someone who actually wants it and because their child doesn't want it yeah the victory garden thing is sometimes i think people really write off that as trivial but i actually 
I think it's kind of crazy that we have kept growing as a population and just were able to forget about how we were going to eat. Like, that's insane. We're so disconnected, right? Generation after generation now of, of that lost knowledge. There's enough people still in agriculture, and we can, we can touch right back into this. And urban centers can be growing a lot more of their own food. And this goes back to city planning and design. It goes back to how, how suburban development, you know, how do we build ourselves around a food system rather than, and that's maybe it's a green roof. It, it'll solve climate stuff. You know, we need to stop tilling and having bare ground for nine months of the year. If we just planted more cover crops in this country and and paid farmers to do it, I, I think is maybe the only way to get that done. You know, we could we could sink a lot of carbon in a very short amount of time and cool our planet back down. I think it's the problem to me too seems to be that if it's left up to the free market, it's, I mean, arguably we're not under a free market, but these changes are not going to happen. It, you can't expect these small family farms in these communities that can't afford their food. You know, like that's the, that's a stopping point right now is like these family farms are working themselves to the bone and they're charging really high prices for their meat and vegetables as they should. But there's a lot of people who balk at that price. A, there's one category who can very well afford that and <laughs> needs to reallocate what they're spending their money on. And then B, there are people who actually can't afford that. And that's tragic. It, to me, it's it's like, where does that money come from? Is it a part of our government system? How can we make that equi- equitable? Because to me, it's like, yes, we should have these regional food systems where every rancher should pay their manager well and they get days off. And, you know, but that all has to come from revenue and that revenue is is hard and very sketchy when it comes to uh, it's scary you stirred a bunch of thoughts like i mean it goes goes back to one of my first observations when i got out there and was interacting with family farmers was the fact they were all buying their food at walmart the fact that their food they were participating in big ags it's just really sad how disconnected from growing our own food we have become but you know then that goes into land access it goes into who continues to to have control of land but yeah what you were also pointing at is our cheap food policy that's over 100 years old now we can thank the new deal for the subsidy system i am not a historian on this by any means but my understanding is you know the government programs were promoting certain cash crops. And this is, that's, you know, continues on to today. And a lot of those cash crops just go back into feeding livestock and, and, you know, that because of the surplus of it and the cheap surplus of it. And so let's put animals in confinement. This will solve it. Let's, let's get rid of waste through, through the guts of bovines that were never, you know, evolved to eat it. It's a hard question to answer. And I don't think that farmers and ranchers necessarily need the answers. Like we don't need all of the answers to solve this whole system. You're doing what you can and you're growing good food and you're trying to do good by the land. And, you know, that brings me to my last question is what, what inspires you? Like what's, what keeps you going? What, what makes you keep loving this career that you've chosen? I have my good days and bad days with it, but yeah, I mean, it goes back to relationships is the reason I keep doing. It's the relationship with the soil, the grasses, the forbs, the how the animals are interacting with that. You know, I do love working with animals and livestock. 
I like puzzling through and dealing with the stuff they decide to do without us present and their impact and the response of the landscape when you do it right, when you hit, you hit that spot where you didn't take too much or you didn't create too much bare ground, but you have this dramatic explosion of nutrients and cycling of, of those nutrients through through the water cycle and the soil. We had a PhD researcher here looking at dung beetles. Uh, she's been in and out for a couple of years now. One day I passed her by and I was like, what'd you find? And you know, she's like, I found a dung beetle I've never seen before. And she found it in a pasture that we have more species running than anywhere else. And it just, and, but it also seems to be the most degraded pasture. And it's the like the one we kind of all grumble about because it just doesn't seem like everything's going right there, right? Like our, our desire to see instant results is, is not being attained. <laughs> and, you know, but something's happening there. We must have more biodiversity. There's more going on there. And that's what we want to hit, right? We want to encourage that the confluence of all life to have a chance. And one thing I do love about living here is just you really see the abundance of insects and birds because our land's certified organic and not having pesticides and not poisoning everything because it's considered vermin. We have this abundance and that's, I want to live in a place of abundance. Even if we don't get it from the sky, we, we have it in the plant and animal life around us. Something I've found is that you notice, you, you feel more abundance when you keep seeking and you you understand what the landscape is is telling you and you can see abundance as you grow in this career. I used to look at grasslands and just be completely ambivalent. I was, I was like, I don't really know what I'm looking at and it's not green. It's not interesting. You know, there's no trees. <laughs> and now when you know what you're looking at and you start learning and, and you build a relationship with that landscape, you start learning like the abundance is it is just coming every single year and in different ways. And then maybe one year it's drought. Maybe you have abundance in other ways in your life. But the more you look for it and seek it out, the more that you'll feel it. That's right. Yeah, you 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 put that well. I, re- I kind of remember now what I was going to speak to a little bit around education, going back to if, if, if anything we could do today would be to improve our, and I, this is a huge debate, right? How do you do this? But like, we need, we need ecological literacy, right? We need food literacy. As much as we need STEM learning, we need natural learning. And that's the thing I grew up with intensively was natural spaces. Nature was, was a guiding environment, was a school of its own for me. And it wasn't that I spent a whole lot of time in it, but that I just naturally was drawn to animals and plants and woody systems and wanting to understand what was around me, know the names of the things around me, right? And humans have been naming things, you know, all along. So we all should want to be able to look at that grassland environment and know all the things going on. If, if we if we could train, you know, it doesn't not that everyone has to understand it intimately or very knowledgeably. We just need to raise the baseline up a few notches. Right. Because currently you can get away with your entire life never having, n- never needing. Uh, I mean, the culture that I come from is kind of you just go about life and don't really ever need to connect with nature in that way and make money and have, you know, everything that you quote unquote need. So yeah, I agree with that. I think, so you guys do quite a bit of education at Pisces. 
we, we're getting back into it now that the pandemic has ended and certainly, you know, agricultural based education, but we also facilitate this as a space for other people that want to use that as as educational environment or event center. That's awesome. Is there anything else that you'd like to add? I mean, I I feel like your question of like, is this going to work for someone? There's just, there's so much to that, right? And like, I come from certainly a a higher level of privilege than a lot of people. And I've had a lot of doors open for me. I've had my own like learning struggles, but like that's nothing to financial hardship or, you know, parental stress or, you know, family baggage. That's my point of view is, is coming from pretty easy terms in life. And so I did originally come into ag because I wanted to feed people, and I don't do that enough. I feed people who can afford my food, and that's not where I want to be. And I I think that goes back to our system of where we produce enough calories for like one and a half time the population, but we have starvation, we have homelessness, we have children going hungry, and our nation is around the world. And it's just, if I had to pivot, it would probably be pivoting towards food justice and how to make nutritious food more available. That's awesome. Well, Martha, thank you so much for being on our podcast. I really appreciate you giving your time and sharing your story. Thank you. so much Martha for joining us that was such a fun conversation if you'd like to learn more about where Martha works at Piscinus Ranch you can find that at piscinusranch.com that is p-a-i-c-i-n-e-s ranch.com and you can also find Martha on Instagram at landless agrarian that's l-a-n-d l-e-s-s agrarian Are you looking for a job in regenerative agriculture? Kivira Coalition has spent decades building a network within the regenerative agriculture community, and we love to share job, internship, and apprenticeship opportunities with our community through our podcast and our monthly newsletter. Rural Voices for Conservation Coalition is hiring a new coalition director. This person will help launch their new coalition engagement strategy while continuing to expand their portfolio of work around natural resources and economic development issues that affect rural communities around the West. The position will remain open until filled, but initial application review will begin September 6th. Have you heard? Kivira's Regenerate Conference is being hosted in Denver this year at the National Western Center, November 2nd through 4th, 2022. Check out regenerateconference.com for a full lineup of speakers, webinars, social events, and more as we explore the theme, Cultivating Restorative Economies. While you're there, check out the Special Events tab and browse our events like the Career Connection Social, Barn Dance, and a selection of regional field days happening before the conference so you can tack these onto your registration. We're hosting one at Lowry Ranch near Denver on November 1st so you can attend before the conference. Early bird pricing ends on August 31st, so sign up today. Every month, we include job postings in our monthly newsletter, so if you don't already receive our monthly newsletter, visit kiviracoalition.org to sign up. To view a copy of this month's newsletter or to read any of our previous newsletters, visit kiviracoalition.org slash newagrarian slash resources. Have a job opportunity to share yourself? 
send it to newagrarian at kiviracoalition.org so we can include it in our next newsletter and podcast. Thank you for listening to Regeneration Rising, a podcast production of the Kavira Coalition. We'd like to thank our guests for taking the time to talk with us about their experiences. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, and other popular podcast platforms. Become a Patreon supporter by visiting kaviracoalition.org slash podcasts. We'd also like to thank Kavira staff members, Leah Ritchie, Taryn Dixon, Taylor Mulia, Lynn Whitbeck, and Caroline Caldwell for their contributions to producing this podcast. This episode was edited and engineered by Caleb Wenzel-Fisher. Wanderlust, our theme music, was made by Scott Buckley. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the land.